Hello, welcome to the podcast, Sport and Life. Teddy Draper here, sports broadcaster in the UK. Thank you for hitting on the button. Thank you as ever to the support of the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. You can go into Jason Briggs' beautiful store in the courtyard here in Montpellier in Cheltenham or look up Serene AV online. If you're looking to optimize your immunity, remember the partnership the podcast has with Cytoplan, food-based supplement company, again, housed in the west of England. But you can go to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, and we can share a discount with you of 30% off your first purchase, 10% ongoing with the code Draper10R, my last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, numerals 10 and the capital letter R. We've been taking Cytoplan supplements for 20 plus years under the stewardship of my father, Dr. Mark Draper, who appeared on the podcast last week. And you can uh, hopefully share in that as well. I hope you are well in these gloomy winter months in the UK. I'm also pleased to announce Sport and Life has partnered with Herring Shoes, English family-run shoemaking business, which Richard Herring started in 1966. Herring specialise in handmade classic shoes like Oxfords and Brogues. I've got a pair of Herring's Black Brogues. Love them. Classic combination of style and incredible comfort as well. They distribute their shoes worldwide. Have kindly offered listeners of the podcast a 10% discount at their website, herringshoes.co.uk. The discount code for that is TED10 and works on full price shoes over £20. Remember, if you're looking to document loved ones' life stories, preserve those memories, look what my wife and I, Carla, are doing through Attic Box Audio. And remember the mentoring session available with Anthony Asprey of the Whole Man Academy through the link in the show notes. Now onto the podcast though, Richard Graves, former colleague at Sky Sports, 17 years he was there, but now flourishing as a freelance sports broadcaster. And this was a fascinating conversation about our industry, sports journalism, his principles and his thoughts on a whole manner of topics. Here he is, the one and only Richard Graves. Richard Graves, welcome to Sports and Life. Brilliant to see you. How are you doing? I thought it was just a hot minute since we were together at Sky Sports News, but you said nearly two, well, coming up two years in the summer since you left. Yeah, time flies. Good to see you as well, Teddy. Um, a lot's happened in the intervening period, but yeah, summer 2021. Um, obviously, we've managed to come out of the pandemic, mm. uh, touch wood to, to a large degree, and, and then you, sort of life moves on. So um, a lot's happened. I've set up my own business in the me- in the meantime, uh, trying to sell myself on the back of a quarter of a century of broadcasting experience. How old <laughs> does that make you sound? Uh, but yeah, I'm enjoying life at the moment. Business is good, um, and we're, it's onwards and upwards. Well, you look you look much younger than 25 years of broadcasting suggests, which is which is good. Maybe you, you're doing your own makeup now, maybe with your own business. I'm not sure. You're doing a fantastic, fantastic job. What was what was that experience like for you to, to leave Sky Sports News? I think after 17 years, I was I was looking at some of the dates in terms of and the challenges you faced going out of your comfort zone. I presume how daunting, but but how rewarding has has that been as well to feel slightly uncomfortable and and get through. Yeah, challenging's uh, a good word to use, I, I think, Teddy, to be honest. Um, I, I was fortunate before Sky, I was self-employed. Um, and it was through that that my path crossed with Sky Sports, uh, initially working for um, the company on a freelance basis and then taking up a, a staff position as the North of England reporter. But as with anything, you, you can always say that you're aware of it and guard against be, being too comfortable. But there comes a point, I think, in anybody's career when if you're working with one organisation uh, for a long enough period, um, things do become a little bit routine and it becomes comfortable in the sense of what you know, what you expect, right right from getting up first thing in the morning to going to bed at night, hopefully if there isn't a breaking news story at two in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after 17 years, then to, to make that transition once again uh, and make a conscious decision right I'm going to set up my own media business here and it's not just going to be reporting. It's going to go into the world of event hosting, um, selling yourself to other organizations, looking at a wide canvas of sports as well, not just football, but in my case, cricket, the NFL and some things outside of that. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking on video um, mm. podcast now behind me. You can see a picture of an evening I did with Carl Fogarty. Oh, um, lovely. But, 
when when I was a kid, I used to watch Superbikes when it was on Sports Night or Grandstand yeah. on on a weekend, and I vaguely remember Carl Fogarty uh, being successful then. So to but that that sort of had a massive chasm of a void in between remembering that and mm. meeting the man himself in in person when you get confronted with a, an audience hall of three hundred and fifty screaming mad biking fans who are listening and hanging on his every word that's another different experience so so yeah over the last 20 months or so uh it's been full of those different experiences it's been full of challenges and at times i'll, I'll admit there was some uncertainty which mm. certainly keeps you on, on the edge of your seat but overall it, it's been good um the experience is positive uh, and now things are, are looking up so so yeah um they, they do say don't they that you know, you, you leave, close one door and open another and you never quite know what to expect. But to this point, it, it's looking good. Well, it's been brilliant to see you. I know you've been working for Sheffield United, uh, IMG as well, on, on Premier League productions. I think Watford as well. So you've had a bit of uh, internal conflict in the championship working for two two kind of in-house outputs. But that's interesting, the Carl Fogarty stuff, because I think I can certainly empathise with that working at Sky Sports News as a presenter, because you, can't, you have to be a jack of all trades. Clearly, we all have mm. our strengths in terms of sports that we like. And and I think you have a, a big breadth and depth of, of sports knowledge, which is, which is pretty rare in the business. But it's and it's quite unusual to be a petrol head and a, and a kind of team ball game sports fan often. I know that my father-in-law is an F1 fan and loves anything with an engine, but isn't particularly interested in, in team sports, which is which is kind of interesting, I said. But what are the what are the keys there? But I, there might be young journalists who are listening in here, sports journalists. I've always said to people in the UK generally, which isn't always the case, but you need football as a lingua franca, and then and then two, three, four, maybe other interests. But you don't have to be an aficionado, do you? You just have to know a a, a route into to getting the key points and, and leaving it to the experts to discuss it. Yeah, you need to have a, a base knowledge. I think. Look, I, I think I'm really lucky that. From the day I can first remember, I was a mad keen sports fan. And frankly, it didn't matter what sport it was. I can remember being a, a five-year-old kid sat on the living room floor at my, my grandma and granddad's watching racing on a, on a weekday afternoon um, and knowing Willie Carson, Lester Piggott, um, yeah. and all, all these great jockeys of the time. At seven years old, literally, I was jumping up and down on my, my mother and father's sofa, reciting word for word the last 250 yards worth of commentary from Peter O'Sullivan <laughs> in the Grand National. Um, but they weren't, that wasn't my main sport. You know, I loved playing football, loved playing cricket, um, self-confessed frustrated sportsman because frankly, never anywhere near good enough to play it at any decent standard. Um, but all, all that along, it's that love of competitiveness. Um, being able to push yourself and wanting to be the best, wanting to win. And fine, you can't do that on sports field. But for me, the next best mm. thing was to go into broadcasting and commentating. Um, and I, I've always said this as well, that being in our profession, it really is a privilege because I, I will go back to when I was fortunate enough uh, to cover my second Super Bowl over in the States. And we're in Arizona. Ironically, that's where it is um, this year as well. But on the morning of the game itself, uh, we turned up outside the stadium, as we always would for Sky Sports News. You um, get a, a load of interviews with fans, find out where they've come from, uh, what they've done, how, how they got there type of thing. And there was one family from Australia um, that, that I bumped into and got talking to. And they said they'd been saving up for 10 years for this opportunity. Wow. Family of four. And, you know, flights, accommodation, game tickets, uh, expenses uh, for food, drinks, uh, merchandise, all in. It had cost them $75,000 to be there. And it was a trip okay, of a lifetime. Yeah. Australian uh, dollars, yeah. Uh, Australian yeah. dollars. Yeah. Um, unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I remember sort of drawing breath afterwards and thinking, wow, it means that much to, to these fans that they would go to that expense, time and effort for just a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And here I am covering a sport that I love and being paid for the privilege of being here and I have a ticket for the game. Mm. It it doesn't really get much better unless you're actually playing in the game itself and lifting the trophy. It doesn't get much better than that. So to anybody that that talks to me or or cares to listen, I would always always say first and foremost, it's a privilege. But it doesn't just happen because quite often you say, "Oh, I'd love to have your job." You mm. have to work hard to get there, and that can be from the age of sixteen working free of charge for the local newspaper one day a week. It can be going to university and getting your degree and then going through that way. It can be as a sportsman with potential growing up through your teenage years and then unfortunately being told you're not good enough, so yeah. you look for another path. But any way you shape it up, 
hard work goes into getting to that point. But once you get there, then yeah, you should you should appreciate it. It's interesting you, you pick up on that connection between playing sport and, and being a sports broadcaster and things that you can take with you in terms of, of character attributes. You Did you think co- consciously about that? You were cognizant of the, the comparison and trying to apply some of the principles of sport to, to making it as a broadcaster, discipline and maybe a little bit of courage here or there and, and, and challenging yourself, putting yourself yeah, outside of your comfort zone. Oh, heck yeah. Um, there, there were a number of times um, when, when I go plot my career when I was offered a, an opportunity to cover a game or do a first broadcast. And I will be honest with you, Teddy, at the time I'm taking that call and thinking, I can't do this. <laughs> I, I've never been live in front of a microphone or live in front of a camera or top of the, the hour type of thing. Um, but for me, the always, 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 I can't emphasize this enough. The default answer is yes. If somebody asks you, um, can you do it? Do you want to? Yes. What's <laughs> the worst that can happen? You can fail, but at least yeah. you've, bit tried uh, and maybe it'll open a door uh, along the way so yeah there's been several occasions I can certainly think of during my career when I cannot tell you how nervous I was um, at the time doing it and there was maybe me and uh, a colleague that that knew at the time but you say yes you do it it didn't always go swimmingly well uh, I might add but once you've done it once then you've got that experience and you can go again um if you turn around and say no or hesitate you might never get that opportunity again so what have you got to lose if it's something you want badly enough put yourself out there it's it's, it's a great point and actually it's really interesting the the connection we have over american football because one of my sort of uh i guess uh, disasters early on in broadcasting i was doing a master's in journalism at ohio university in america because I'd been coaching uh, football or soccer over there in the summers, I always switch to soccer when I'm talking about American sports, otherwise it gets confusing talking about two versions of football. But I was doing soccer coaching and someone mentioned a great journalism program at Ohio University. So I managed to get in by hook or by crook, but most of the overseas people wanted to be hardcore, sort of hard news journalists, but I was keen to be a sports journalist, which would be fantastic because you've got the, the common language, but then the problem is the sports scene. So I did a little bit of soccer, <laughs> high school commentary for the local radio, but mainly it was American sports. And there's this great show on WOUB TV in Southeast Ohio called Gridiron Glory. And you go out to a high school American football game, which sounds small fry if you're, you're English, but if you're American, you know that this is a huge deal. There's big crowds, big stands. Uh, everyone looks forward to it all week. And for that year, at least, those those high school seniors are, are huge local characters. But we had to go back. We'd do the first half, then we'd get the score on the phone and we'd sort of look at highlights and we'd have to talk over them on, on the set of the uh, Gridiron Glory studio at WOUB headquarters. And the first time I just couldn't read my notes. I was trying to make notes about routes and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, what this, and, and after, it was a really sobering thing. And the guy, Keith Corley, who was a student, but the head of the program said to me, right, just come back next week and just do it again. And actually that was really key because I did it. I kept it really simple. Who threw the pass? Who caught the pass? Who scored the touchdown? Who kicked? whatever the, the the conversion or not the conversion, but the extra point might be. So it was the detail. And it, it was a good lesson, actually, a sobering lesson, because American sports are so alien, actually, a lot to, to, to British people. But if you could do that, then you could come back. And I was never a cricket aficionado, played a bit at school, but you could apply those principles of, of simplicity, which I think is a big thing, isn't it? What's the score? <laughs> Who scored? Those fundamentals, it really brings you home. If you try another sport, you're not you're not familiar with. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And this is what I mean when I say hard work goes into it. it, it there's no no true adage, in, in my opinion, that if you fail to prepare, then prepare yeah. to fail. Um, and, and it goes back to what you were just telling us there. And, you know, I, I can remember I, the first radio broadcast I ever did was an RSL. I don't know if they're still around now, but mm. essentially what that is, is a radio station looking to get a first time a full-time license and you they get given a, a license to broadcast for one month see how it goes uh, and my sole job was on a saturday afternoon to round up the the lo- local football scores around huddersfield so it maybe took took in seven or eight teams tops and it was a sheet of a4 paper which i'd written out and i can tell you i, I i'm not ashamed to say i was bricking it for the 60 <laughs> seconds it took to reading it there were countless mistakes and you come off it and if you demand enough for yourself, as I did it still at the time, um, it's, that's rubbish. I'll never get called back. But like you, you get called back because it's an RSL. Everybody mm. doing it is a volunteer and they want voices on. And that, that attention to detail right there and then isn't nearly the same as if you're in a paid full time job. So you get called back to that. And you, for me, that's the sort of experience you never let go. Re- remember that because it's always the the baseline, if you like, of 
what can happen and yeah. how can you pull yourself out of it? And you, you translate that from, I think it was 1993 um, when I did that to last or the year before last now, 2021. And I am the, the first uh, British voice NFL network reports they've got of the game at Tottenham. Wow. Um, what was that like? That, well, that, that was incredible because we, we did the build up on Good Morning uh, Football on the Friday and the Saturday. And these are faces that I've grown up watching as first and foremost as an NFL fan. Then uh, through work, you get to know many of these faces as colleagues when you're over in the States and strike up relationships. So um, Friday and Saturday were fine. They were good fun. And then bizarrely, we, we got to game day itself. And on the morning of the game, I remember getting ready to go down to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And it suddenly hit me like a sledgehammer <laughs> that I was a British voice on the sideline doing the build-up into um, game day morning with Rich Eisen, um, Steve Mariucci, Kurt Warner, Michael Irving and, and co. And it just occurred, I don't know why, it occurred to me that if this was a Premier League game and it's fans over here watching an American reporter, no matter how good he is, mm. um, getting ready on the sideline for a Premier League game in the States if it happened, um, it would only take one slip, like you say, get getting the vernacular wrong slightly once. And everybody's going to be jumping on it because there, there, there's those preconceived yeah. stereotypes. And so all, all of a sudden, I was incredibly nervous. And all I had to do were two 30-second hits prior to the game because it was the kickoff time was so early back at, over in the States. Um, and I remember doing both of them and being aware that I was quite nervous and coming off it and, and not being that pleased with it. But within 10 minutes of the game finishing um the the my editor if you like over at nfl network at the time was on the phone that was excellent loved it i got home and as i will always do if um if it's a, a new show new venture i'm going i will record it and watch it back and self-critique i remember watching it back with a lot of trepidation i might add and going actually if you didn't know you wouldn't it's only because you yourself know yes uh, and again this is what i talk about when um you know, just do your job, demand the very high standards of yourself. And even if you don't think it's gone as well as you, you'd you want it to, actually, when you come to watch it back, most people will probably think that's pretty good. And if, yes. if that's as bad as it gets, then you're doing a damn good job. How important is it to watch ourselves back and listen back? Because even today, there's, there's always that slight cringe cringeworthiness to it. But it, it, There's it, always the cringeworthiness <laughs> to it. I, I think killer. it's really important. Yeah. Um, ju just because I don't think there's any bigger critic than than yourself um and i can remember starting out as a, a kid doing hospital radio commentating on huddersfield town matches um you didn't have the technology that we have now so i had the this great big cassette recorder um which at the time was my walkman and any kid yeah. my age at the time thought you were really cool when you had a walkman kids today would look at it and say it's a brick yeah now, um, now that's what i call music probably in there yeah yeah exactly yeah. every album you know it um, but I'd also have um, a, a microphone that I, I plugged into it and you have your headset and I'd plug the mic, well, fit the microphone in between the headset and my ear just so you could record the output. And then in the car driving home after the game, I'd stick the cassette um, in the in the car cassette player and I'd listen back to it. And there'd be bits I'd think, yeah, I liked the um, turn of my voice, the infliction there. Um, and these other times I think, God, that's awful, Richard. <laughs> um, but that's how, how you learn. And the other thing I'd say to any aspiring uh, reporters, commentators, journalists um, right now is if you are on site, on location, be it at a game or out covering a court case, if that's the case, or wherever you might be, if you see somebody that you're aware of, be it from Five Live, be it from Sky, be it from the BBC, do not be afraid to go up to them and introduce yourself uh, and just mm -hmm. ask them. You know, do you mind giving me two minutes and telling me how you got to, to where you are today? Because it was one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given. And I've never known anybody turn around to, to you, me and say, I haven't got the time. No, go away. They, they won't do that. Um, and it's a good way of networking as well. So once again, yeah, it comes back to the original point of don't be afraid to put yourself out there because you can only get better by it. You can only learn from it. Um, so, yeah, don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, that that state that you go into, what what is that process like? Because you do, we do have a sort of imposter syndrome, don't we? And a negative voice on our shoulder. But do you have a sort of process of impartiality where you can detach yourself and, and look at it relatively objectively when you're analysing a performance? 
Uh, my, my own performance. Yeah, yeah. If you're looking back at your own performance, yeah. you're, you're trying to make, you sort of, you know, let it let it cool off for a bit, then look back and then sort of pick up on things that, and try and put yourself in the mind of a viewer or a listener. And did I enjoy that? Would I like that? Would that would that interest me? It, it's a good question. With with the NFL Network example I gave, yeah, I had to give it 24 hours to cool off before I was willing to to put it on and and have a look and see was it really as bad as I thought it was or actually no that was a pleasant surprise thankfully often it's the opposite way around isn't it I've often found yeah, yeah. I thought it was great I look back and think actually it wasn't that great and I thought it was terrible it, it often wasn't that terrible it's funny yeah exactly but um in terms of match commentaries and so on um no more often than not I, I wouldn't give it a, a cooling off period I, I quite liked to have the game itself fresh in my mind um and also the moments because it in sports commentary, I, I do think it's about living in the moment, um, being able to appreciate the atmosphere that is around you. Yeah. And that's what you're trying to either complement if you're doing commentary on TV because everybody can see the pictures. Or if you're on radio, it's the picture you're trying to paint, the atmosphere you're trying to convey. Because always remember, if you're you're working in radio, you are the eyes for the listener. They can't mm -hmm. see what you're seeing. So don't ever take that for, for granted. Um, so it's about picking your moments, having a good range of vocabulary um, and adjectives so you can paint a really accurate picture and flip that on its head for if you're working in TV. The, the one thing I, I think I notice um, more than anything else is the number of people that will go into TV and they will talk too much. Mm. The, the best the best commentators quite often say next to nothing. Um, there'll be key moments, goals. You know, Martin Tyler talking over Sergio Aguero's goal. Joe Buck talking over Stefan Diggs' walk-off touchdown in the playoffs several years back. And they, quite often, they don't state the obvious. They'll have uh, different adjectives to describe the scene, but it's one, two-word statements, and there's a pause to let the atmosphere come through the, the TV and speakers as well. And that's what makes the moment. That's why those pieces of commentary be, become legendary and are played over and over again. Not because of what the commentator did say, but quite often because of what he didn't say. So TV, you have to be more comfortable with silence. Is that a yeah. fair? Yeah. Absolutely. You're not, you're not and, describing. And I, you see that in pundits sometimes. They're overly descriptive about goals. And you think, actually, I want you to ask, answer why, not what happened. Yeah, completely. I mean, the, the best commentators, look at the World Cup, the best commentators like Clive Tilsley, for for example. Um, it was refreshing, I thought, to to hear him behind the microphone again because mm. he, has a, he has a different way of describing what you can see. And quite often he won't embellish it with um, flowery sentences, if, for the sake of a better phrase, that quite, frankly aren't necessary. Um, and, and he manages to capture the moment. And I remember hearing an interview with him um, on one occasion. And he's, he was asked, what's the key? What goes through your mind when you have, you know, a, a match-winning moment? And he turned around and, and said something to the effect of, "I, what goes through my mind is, what would I be asking if I was at home? What would be my, my reaction as a fan? And the moment you're able to put yourself in that seat is the moment you give your best yourself your best chance of succeeding because all of a sudden then you're not trying to preach to the viewer or listener you're actually trying to enhance their experience it and let's not forget you know teddy sport is fun the, the reason thousands and thousands and thousands of people go to sporting events up and down the country every weekend is because they've worked hard all week and it's their moment to escape it's the moment to experience that ultimate high inhalation and equally as much as none of us want to admit it appreciate the moment when you hit rock bottom and you, you think your whole weekend's ruined because your team just hasn't delivered. Um, it, and it's that range of emotions that draws us all in. Uh, and never forget that. I think sometimes we can take it too seriously when it fundamentally sport is about having fun and enjoying the moment. Yeah, I think that's that, that's key. And the, the moment of being present is an interesting one when it comes to commentary, because I know there are commentators who script lines maybe in, in advance or anticipation of, of a key goal score or a key winning moment. And I know Martin Tyler doesn't, because I've got the good fortune of knowing him a little bit, because by happen chance, he was my uncle's uh, patient. My uncle's a general practitioner, so it was a weird, a weird connection, <laughs> a weird connection there. But what, do, what what's your approach to that? Do you have kind of any scribbles of, of things that might happen? No. No, no, not at all. I will go into um, events, games with notes, you know, high goal scorers, um, goal droughts, goal sequences, um, unbeaten runs, club records, that type of thing. So you've got to fall back if you need it. But no, I'm I'm a massive believer that I, I keep coming back to, to it, Teddy. 
It's a privilege to be at each event, no matter how big or small it might be perceived to be on the outside. It's a privilege to be there because for someone that's at that event, it will be there everything on that given day. So why would you try and script something that might not happen? Why are mm. you, you going to try and preempt a moment that could be so left field that just the spontaneous reaction is what what heightens that sensation? Um, yes, be prepared, but don't try and preempt things because sport sport is about here and now. I, you know, keep saying those highs, those lows. It's about living in the moment. And if you're pre-scripting stuff, you're not living in the moment. So no, that, that's not for me, I've got to say. Yeah, prep's a big one as well. It's kind of analogous to that, I suppose, or a similar similar theme because as Sky Sports News, we often have to update sports and often golf and, and cricket, as I say. And there was a temptation when I first started as a presenter on the channel eight years ago to try and vomit out every stat or every <laughs> bit of information I had about this kind of, you know, unheralded player on the European tour who's number 280 in the world or whatever it might be. And actually thinking about it, all they want to know is, broadly speaking, who's at the top? Where's Rory McIlroy? That's kind of it. But actually that prep is still valuable in a sense, but that's for mm. you, not for the, the viewer or or listener. Is that is that a key message? The prep, as you mentioned, I think there is a, it's a kind of, a, it's a safety net but it's not something you have to to part with yeah absolutely it is uh, and more times than not i find if like, like you're referencing there you're you're on set in a studio and you've got guests that prep can be the moment when one of the guests forgets somebody's name and they need bailing out well if you haven't prepped you can't bail them out um so you're i, I would always say your job as a presenter isn't to be the expert it's to have a baseline of knowledge but importantly, it's to link the, the segment or show together because that's the reason you've got the, the former players sat beside you. That's the reason you've got a current manager sat there because, frankly, as much as you and I don't like to admit this, Teddy, most of the viewers at home don't really care what you and I I think. No. They're more interested in listening to Harry Redknapp or Harry Kane or Jose Mourinho because they're, they're the, the guys that they follow week in, week out. Well, what, what, have you there, ma- what, what have you made of this? Blur- Sorry to interrupt, but what have you made of the blurring of the lines now? Because it seems there's sort of more encouragement for, for journalists, particularly in the internet era, the YouTube era of, of people who are either fans or quote unquote journalists who want to offer their opinion. And, and sometimes maybe we're encouraged maybe a little bit more at work to offer an opinion than, than perhaps previously. What's your take on that? Because it was almost sacrilegious when we were coming through to, to ever venture an opinion. Yeah, um, I've got to be honest. Maybe I'm a bit old fashioned. I don't like it. Um, You know, at the end of the day, uh, you and I have never played for England in any World Cup game, let alone a World Cup final. Um, So what is the value of our opinion on the way somebody's played or how a team has been set up? I would argue it's not very high, quite frankly. Um, So if, for instance, you've got Roy Keane, Rio Ferdinand and another uh, Gary Neville or Jamie Carragher um, in your lineup, then my job is to throw it to to you and link the conversation between. Sure, I could give observations. Um, you know, I can relate to press conferences or what the managers said or how he's reacted to this and ask for their opinion. But yeah, if if you're in one of those moments um, when you've got a capacity crowd, it's all on the line. Then it, it's not my opinion that matters most. That's not what I, I'm there to do. I'm there to you know, hold it all together, make it appear seamless and to to help um, increase the entertainment that the viewer or listener back home gets. The the job of um, the former professionals, the expert analysts is to be exactly that, to relate to their experiences, to give the the viewer or listener at home an insight that they might otherwise not be privy to, to enhance that moment. Um, So, yeah, I... I've watched with interest the the way those lines have been blurred in the last 18 months or so. I'm not a fan of it. I think I will say this. I think there are some former professional athletes that slip into that role seamlessly and do a good job. There are others where I would argue, well, okay, there's a reason that you've got people in the industry that have made lifelong careers out of it and are rated at the top of their game. And it's not because they've just made that transition. Um, it's, it, I, what was the um, the conversation that was had uh, a few years ago? I can remember at a football game talking about free kicks and somebody basically saying, well, you, you know, if you're going to have that argument for this profession, what's to say that, you know, I, I haven't played Sunday league football. I can't just walk onto the park and hit a free kick. Everybody knows how to put it into the top corner. But the good, good ones, they can do it, you know, on demand. The rest of us, well, we like to think we're good enough, but maybe we're not. 
No, I know. We, we, well, I bottled it coming through in trial, so I never made it. I think you, <laughs> you make a good point. I think that thing about playing and having that experience, I think what they, those people have is empathy and an understanding mm. and a roundedness, which I always marvel at a lot of fans who kind of will hammer a professional player and you'll say, you do realise that that was the best player in his region, his county, you know, whatever it is. He's not, <laughs> he's not rubbish. And we, we had a friend that's at university used to say he was as quick as Mikel Silvestre, which we always say, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that's <laughs> Should we put that to the test? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Certainly not on a, on, a, on a football pitch necessarily. And what about the stats? Have, have stats become devalued in, in the ubiquitous area of era of the internet do you think is it more powerful just to have one or two now how many games you've lost in a row because there was a time when studying up with with books and everything else was probably something that, that fans hadn't heard but people have it at their disposable now at their phone yeah i i think times have changed teddy to, to be honest it there was a time where and this still applies to some sports to be fair when stats aren't the be all and end all but i think particularly if you're talking about football mm. football's not really a sport anymore it's a business um, so it, it gets to a point, and I think Sam Allardyce has said this on a couple of occasions, or more than a couple of occasions, that it's a results-driven business. Now, you're judged by wins and losses. It doesn't really matter, um, especially if you're in the Premier League, how, how you attain those wins and losses, whether you're playing uh, football like Brazil or you're just getting the ball in the back of the net and winning mm. games 1-0. You know, back in the, the early 90s, you know, 1-0 to the Arsenal under George Graham was the song Gunners fans love because they were winning games and they were winning Premier League or old First Division titles. Um, well, now it, it's got to the point where, you, you know, you look at Frank Lampard at, at Everton, for example. It, it's been one win in 10 games, I think, in mm. all competitions. He's only been in the role um, just under 12 months. He hasn't really had time to formulate his, his own team there because of their financial situation. And already, you know, I, I was listening um, to a show only the day before yesterday and they were asking the question, you know, is Frank Lampard under pressure? Um, could, could this be a, a do or die game this weekend yeah. against Southampton? And, and that that's the point now with, with sports that are so high profile and where there's so much money involved. It's a business. And the risk of dropping out of the Premier League financially to these clubs is so great that they don't perhaps afford managers the luxury of time that they once would, whereas you could go through cricket, for example, and yes, money's involved, but not to the same extent. And, you know, coaches do get a bit more time. Um, and that applies to, to other sports as, as well, with it, without doubt. So when you talk about stats and do they matter, from a broadcasting perspective, yes, absolutely, they, they matter. Mm. They're the, the lifeblood of, of what we do to make it, make it work um, every Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, whatever it, it might be. Um, in sport, it's about winning and losing. Um, you know, there's a, the, the best example I can give is only five years ago, there used to be a lot of talk about, look, look how far a player's run during the course of a game. Yes. That means he's putting in effort, um, he's getting up and down the pitch, and he's doing everything you'd want to. And then um, was it Dean Richards as Worcestershire head coach did an interview and turned around and said, well, we're looking at it slightly differently. Um, it could be everything you say there, but if a player is running more than anyone else on the field, it's worth asking why that is. And could it be that it's because he or she's out of position yes. a lot and therefore not doing their job well? So that, that turns it on, on its head um, and suddenly it makes you ask questions. And I think um, what, what else, a, a long way around answering your question, Teddy, is that anything that makes you question how you get from A to B, whether that's using stats, not using stats, um, being more colourful in your commentary, saying less, anything that questions it can only make you better. And I think that applies across the spectrum. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. On air the other day, we were talking to Gareth Ainsworth and the assumption that certain stats are positive or negative. And he was talking about how he rarely ever wins a game at Wickham Wanderers if his team has more of the ball than the other team. And said, actually, <laughs> possession can be an, an absolute liability if you're not careful and actually, you know, isn't necessarily an indication of performance, which I think in the, in the Guardiola, Tiki Taka at Spain... Yeah. Barcelona era we've come to sort of maybe be persuaded that way but maybe it's not always the case for a lot of teams that possession equals quote unquote good you mentioned the business aspect there Richard I've had a sort of moral quandary on a couple of occasions over the past few years in terms of opportunities turned down some opportunities because of where they're coming from and sports apparent pursuit of of money over perhaps ethical concerns we saw that race in the Qatar World Cup of course recently as well human rights issues and and gender issues L LGBTQ plus issues 
uh, were, were raised during that. Do you do you feel it's a difficult time? Is sport in danger of of following the money? And we all need money, of course. It makes the world go round. But following money at, at, at a cost at the moment. It's unquestionably a difficult time, and it's a difficult time because back in the day, growing up, if you heard it once, you heard it a million times. Sport and politics don't mix, and mm. neither will interfere with the other. Well, in the last decade, especially. You've seen sport and politics mixing increasingly. And frankly, it's difficult not to because, you know, we're talking about sport being a business, the amount of money involved. Well, with that comes a heightened profile. So, of course, sport and politics uh, are going to mix. Um, it, it makes it difficult, I think, when you try and on one hand put the argument forward I did earlier, which was sport first and foremost is about fun, living in the moment and, and entertaining everybody. Um, but then you move on to the issues of the day. And like you say, equality and diversity, um, the race issues that we've seen more prevalent probably in the States, but certainly yeah. aren't exclusively um, a problem for the States. We've seen issues over here in the UK as well. Uh, and you, at some point, you've got to realize that if there's a high enough profile, then there's an example that needs to be set as well that goes with it. Um, nothing, it, you know, there's no such thing as a free meal. And this is probably the best case of that, you know, for, for all those professional athletes, for you and I that are in front of a camera um, uh, and are watched week in, week out, uh, be it on the field, on the radio or on the TV, there's a standard that has to be adhered to. And in this particular time uh, and era, that includes um, saying the right things, leading by example, uh, and making sure that you are inclusive, that there isn't a naivety about the way people conduct themselves that maybe there was in previous generations. Uh, and I'm not going to lie, it's not an easy path to mm. tread for, for anybody because there's now a, a, a much greater awareness uh, of the issues that people are faced with day in, day out, um, and that you can't generalise in the way uh, people once did because ultimately somebody will be offended if it's not what they believe or if it's not their way of life. And you have to have an appreciation of society around you and accept that your way of life, your your beliefs don't apply to everybody. Um, and that 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 is something that I think everybody um, involved in the entertainment industry, be it playing or be it broadcasting, um, is still grappling with because it's not easy. Um, but if it was easy, you know, we wouldn't have an issue, would we? So um, I think things are getting better. Um, I think that just the facts we're all aware means that people generally are at least making the efforts, tracking the right direction. But there's certainly some some progress still to be made there. Yes, I know. And I, I think it's, it is an, an interesting tension. And, and Kate Mason was on the podcast who worked and lived in Qatar and gone over and done a documentary, I believe, for the Football Ramble and was talking about that nuanced position between not being holier than thou, but still, if you believe in inalienable rights, is is kind of still trumpeting that, and it's it's that delicacy. And I do wonder whether some sportsmen and women and, and sports themselves will be tarnished historically, retrospectively, similar to the Rebel Tours to South Africa, things like that, where people aren't looked looked on, you know, with fondness because of the the apartheid in South Africa at the time when we were growing up. I suppose is the, the only the analogy I have. Yeah, I it, it, see. I even though I was, I was in, still in single figures as a child growing up. I do have vague recollections of those rebel tours to South Africa. Um, what I will say is, it was a very different time where different standards were accepted yeah. by your peers. Um, I, and I, I really struggle to have people who were weren't accountable for their own actions back in that time being held accountable for for them now so if it's me or you as kids growing up and the way things were conducted i i don't think you can hold those type of people accountable for something no. adults did but back yeah. then yeah um because you're, you've grown up th through the different ages and, and eras um whereas you, social media is probably the best example that you know you hear and see people even now being held accountable for social media posts they put on, say, in 2010. Um, over a different a different person then, aren't you? Yeah, it's a different world. Yeah, different exactly. person, yeah, a different person, Teddy. And also the fact that social media was different then. It, mm. You know, we weren't really aware. People forget it's only 
20, 23 years ago that even emails, you know, yeah. became a thing. Yeah. Um, so things have moved really rapidly. And yeah, you can turn around and apologize and say, in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, I got this wrong. Um, but to be pilloried when somebody's still offering an apology and showing regret, I struggle with that because I, I think there's got to be some latitude there. Um, now, I, I know not everybody will, will agree with me. I, I'm just trying to sort of paint the picture and say, look, things aren't so definitive black and white um, for the sake of a, of a mm. better phrase. Yeah, we're all um, we're all human and we're all fallible. Yeah, I, I think I think that's important to to bear in mind. Now, you you learn and you move on, and if you're still making the same mistakes again, I don't think there's any excuse for that. But I I think there's got to be a general acceptance as well that it's been a, a learning curve and at times a pretty steep learning curve over the last decade in particular. What's the learning curve on social media be for you? Because you are active on on LinkedIn, which I think is is a fairly safe and uh, you know comfortable place from what I've seen. Maybe Twitter not so and, and, and other platform because again it was sort of references maybe that opinion thing doesn't it i see a lot of journalists yeah carrying a huge following which is a sort of metric of the of the moment that everyone wants a big following in a, in a sense and attention but it's what you do to get that attention sometimes being a sort of plain straight down the middle journalist doesn't always garner that it's, it's an interesting dilemma isn't it how do you approach that one it, it, it is a dilemma um and i'll be honest i've made a conscious decision that when it comes to twitter um, with the very, very, very rare odd exception, it is all about work. So yeah. you, you will struggle to find um, tweets on my account that don't relate to either a game I'm at or an observation on what I'm watching or a topic of the, the day. Um, just not, because... not Prince Harry, Meghan, or who's going to no, win the election? Uh, yeah, um, any opinions I might have or, on that situation, I kept very much to, to myself because it's a minefield. Um, yeah, I, I think this is what I say when I, I say it's been a steep learning curve over the last decade. I think, especially as a, a journalist, you've got to be accountable for your own actions. You've got to um, have an awareness uh, of what's going on around you and in that immediate moment. So for me, it, it was a fairly straightforward decision. Um, Twitter is all business. It's about work. People follow me on Twitter because I, I assume they value my opinion. I certainly hope they do. Um, and also feel that anything that I post there is informed and comes from a, a fairly solid source. Um, LinkedIn, that that's I, I've always treated LinkedIn as being a business forum. Um, so that that is about my business and trying to expand it. Um, Instagram and Facebook might you might perceive as being a, a little bit different, but I also think that you, you've got to make those lines pretty clear if that's mm. going to be be the case. Um, and at the moment you. Yeah, it's when you talk about personalities that offer their opinion, venture to give it. Well, you're there to be shot at then, and it. I have some sympathy with with some of them who then mentally it takes a toll on them. But equally, um, be it right or wrong, I would turn around and say, well, if that's the case, and you're struggling to deal with the reactions that are coming your way, again, you've got to take some responsibility for it. Remove yourself from the platform if if needs, because frankly, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Um, do you, have but, you got work through social media? Has it been profitable yeah. for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, in that sense, it's been good for me. Um, you know, clients have found me be it through both Twitter and LinkedIn specifically. Um, so that sort of validates for mm. me, at least that validates yeah. the path I've decided to take on that. But like you say, that there are other people that decide to take a different path and some people that enjoy that back and forth that they have with with followers um that's not necessary well it's certainly not a path i want to venture down any time in a hurry because you see some of the reactions you get and you're like whoa is I, yeah it's not something i'm interested in no it's a, it's a safe approach to take i think you say you know you're playing with fire if you go and shoot yeah. and then expect you know some some repost from from people who can who can attack you from all corners of the world in an instant now with a keyboard so it's an it's an interesting time in that regard, I just wanted to go back to what we were talking about earlier because I noticed on your LinkedIn as well your US visa approved and the, and the sort of <laughs> delicacy of of this of this transatlantic relationship because it is an interesting one. Being at college in the states was I remember other nationals who were there couldn't really understand because I remember a Lithuanian sports reporter actually Rita Stankovicuta she lives in the far east now but she worked with me she was saying to me why can't you just speak in an american accent when you do the the the, <laughs> the, the broadcast and i was like you can't do that and i remember there was a, a guy who was the editor of the local news station refused to let me go on until i said tuesday not tuesday and <laughs> le leisure not leisure and there was these things and i remember over the course of time that 
being there that my accent apparently changed because when I came home I'd meet people working at local BBC radio and they'd be like are you from New Zealand and I was like no, no. but apparently <laughs> it sort of affected my accent in a, in a way maybe it'd come come antipodean somehow but it was it was a strange it was a strange experience but it was like what concessions do you make how how unique you are because you don't want to confuse people do you when you're speaking to an American audience but at the same time I think it feels wrong to try and kind of put on some midwestern brogue or something yeah I, I completely agree um and I won't try and change the accent. I do think that getting the vernacular right is important. Yeah. So little things like you, you suddenly start talking about being on the sideline instead of the touchline. It's soccer instead of football. Um, mm. you, people get acclimated to situations as opposed to acclimatizing. To ah, them. yeah, yeah. Um, li little things like that, you know, route instead of route. You say yeah. route over there and they're like, what? Um <laughs> So, so yeah, I mean, going back to that ex first experience with NFL Network um, a couple of years back, that that was one of the things in the the first live cross I did with with Rich Eisen. I was really conscious of Shad Khan was in the building. Um, Fulham had played twenty four hours earlier and had won, and I was here to see his um, Jacksonville. Is it funny enough? I always still say Jaguars. I never say Jaguars. Yes, you are Jaguars. Uh, just because I don't think I can pull it off. No. Uh, but, <laughs> But, but, but no but one it, might know, but you'd know. That's the funny thing. Yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. Um, so so I, I did the live cross and I referred to 24 hours removed from seeing his soccer team win yesterday. He's now hoping his football team can do the mm. same. Uh, and to be fair, I came off the back of it. Rich Eisen said, you can call it football. We call it football over here, which was a great way to, to say <laughs> Soccer's English as well, isn't it? The heritage yeah. is actually English. Yeah. People get really exactly. Private. But um, it, like you say, it's it's finding that happy medium. Um, they, there's no point in trying to pull on the accent. It's a waste of time. You'd fall flat on your face. Um, and, and to be fair, I would argue that, especially when you're in the States, and most people I think that have experienced being in America will, will already know this, um, your, your British accent is actually a major positive in your favour. Um, yeah. they, they love it over there. So, yeah, I, in, in my experience, if you show willing, um, the accent doesn't matter. That um, you know, that generally uh, the, I've been received pretty well uh, over in the States. Um, but yeah, that, that that's the other piece of advice, isn't it? Don't try and do too much because no. you, that's not what you're there for and people will call you out on it. It's, it's, it's funny, the, nu the nuance of things as well. And when I start to analyse words as well, I think actually the way that they say it probably makes more sense, like, you know, vitamin, not vitamin and things like that. And you think actually because it comes from vitality. So that probably, why are we calling it vitamin? And you sort of second guess yourself a, a little bit. With I still can't like get my head around saying math instead of maths. No. It doesn't work for me. So yeah. There's a short of mathematics, not mathematics. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the, that, that's the, that's the funny one. And I don't know whether Australian, New Zealand people feel the same way when they come over here or go to the States because there's a lot of English language sort of nuance out there as well. It, it, it does crack me up. The interesting one is I had no problem completely conceding to the American vernacular when it was American sports, but you mentioned soccer there. It's whether you start to indulge in PKs and, and scrimmages and all that kind of stuff, which I sometimes wonder. Yeah, I'm not doing that. No. no. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, if, we're, if we're talking our football, then we're, we're talking with, with our vernacular. Yeah. Um, but I, again, I, I genuinely think um, from my experiences that it's, it's a little bit like, you know, NFL fans watching NFL coverage over here. It's accepted. It is first and foremost an American sport. So you want the American vernacular that goes with it. And I think if you speak to most soccer fans over in the States, it, it, they know it's not their nation's first sport, so they want the the British vernacular that that goes with it, and it's for that reason that um, great commentators like Ian Dark, John Champion, for example, have been so successful when when they made that tra transition mm. to to working in America because they garner that respect straight off the bat, and they're, they're seen as peers of their industry. Yeah, if you're second guessing yourself, it would undermine you if it's a natural sport because you'd be sort of yeah. having two two versions in your head as well. That, no, that is that is a fascinating kind of insight and the the new the nuance of it all and, and different different accents and different different ways of of looking at it, which we have in in this country as well. Richard, what what's big for you then? What are you looking forward to this year? Uh, well, there's plenty on the horizon, uh, which is good. Um, coming up over the next few weeks, obviously, still have the Premier League where we have the NFL playoffs. Uh, coming up as well. So I'll be doing work previewing games um, in each of those rounds in the coming weeks. I will be heading over to Ireland at the start of next month. Um, NFL 
fans uh, of Sky Sports coverage will certainly be aware of Jeff Reinbold. Um, I'm going over there with him to yeah. do a, a couple of, of nights, one in uh, Belfast, one in Dublin. Um, I'm delighted to say both are completely sold out already. Tickets, from what I hear, went with inside 24, 48 hours, which Brilliant. is fantastic. So looking forward to that. Um, continuing uh, presenting on SUTV, uh, Sheffield United's. Uh, behind a paywall match day program and hopefully such wood things will keep going in the right direction for the blades who are very much looking at an automatic promotion spot right now and then you're, you're working further... for Watford as well aren't you was the or had uh, one no 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 that that was a a, a one-time only thing last oh, season okay. so we, we avoided the conflict of interest because <laughs> they were in the premier league at, at that point so yeah rest assured when it comes to the championship at the moment at least um <laughs> it's it's sheffield united all the way and then well, what was that um, like, what, what's that like working in a partisan because i did a little bit of mutv earlier in my career and i'm a manchester united fan but actually i was almost kind of like uncomfortable at some of the sort of um the biased coverage we, we, we were having it's a difficult balance when you come from the objectivity training it, it's different um i i think again because quite often you work alongside um former blades players like carla saba chris morgan uh, mark duffy so they they beat their chests in a red and white mm. through and through um, I think there's a, a greater acceptance that, you know, like we we're talking about earlier, I come from a broadcasting background and have that experience. So I'm not required to be quite as partisan. Now, I say look, we. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which people um, do with England. Some some broadcasters, there's a certain radio station I won't mention, but they all referred to we throughout the World Cup. And I was thinking, well, I'm half Welsh. You know, it's like... <laughs> I'm, it's, no, uh, I, I, I will say this. When, when we're actually in the throes of a game and we're analysing um, stuff in studio then, you know, th there's no getting around it. It's a Sheffield United service. It's about Sheffield United. And we're talking about their performance. So it is we. Yeah. Um, now, initially, I struggled to to come to grips with that at the start of last season. But it, it's something you grow into. Um, and I will say this, off the field as well as on it, it's a great team um, that I work with and have the pleasure of dealing with it at Sheffield United. And it's enjoyable um, all the way so and it helps of course that the team are, are winning games on the pitch that always makes life easier but yeah like we said right at the top of this chat Teddy that you never stop learning there are always different experiences and just when you think you've got it cracked something else gets thrown at you and this was one of those things so I, I enjoy it because it takes you out of your comfort zone and you've got to adapt to it um, I, I kind of no I am a firm believer that the moment things become too routine you whether you're conscious of it or not, you don't give your best performance. So it's always good to have something that just keeps you on your toes a little bit. I love it. I just wanted to, it's a, sort of a serious topic as well to touch upon because you do cover a lot of the NFL. You've covered rugby as, as well. And, and I love combat sports and even football, soccer. We've been talking about head trauma. Where Where's that going, do you feel? We, we get it into a more illuminated stage where people can participate, but with the knowledge of the dangers involved. Is that what it's about? Because I feel like in boxing, we've known for a long time it was dangerous, but perhaps we hadn't known quite how dangerous these other sports are yeah I, I think we're definitely becoming more enlightened about it and that can only be good um for for anybody that hasn't seen it i would always strongly um recommend the film concussion with will smith yeah which was the first breakthrough movie i felt that dealt specifically with concussion and it's based on um actual actual real events um in the nfl now without a doubt uh, the national football league have been at the forefront of concussion research over the last seven or eight years and they've plowed millions of dollars into research and rugby particularly i think has benefited from that i um, had the pleasure of speaking to dr alan sills who's the chief medical officer at the nfl when they were over last autumn and i know he, he talked at a forum involving the premier league about the research what they learned um and how they're looking to advance um protective measures i it does concern me that, um, rightfully or wrongly, and I may well be pilloried for saying this, I don't feel football has got to grips with the implications of head trauma as quickly as other sports are doing. You know, you've only got to look back to the World Cup. Um, and I forget which team it was. It might have been Iran, Iran's goalkeeper. I believe so, yeah. Um, maybe against England, in fact, in the opening game. And he clearly took a severe blow to the head, um, looked dazed and confused, took five or six minutes um, to, to get treatment and then was allowed to carry on. There, there is, in the NFL now, you've got um, independent spotters at games. And if they see somebody, even if they just fall to the ground at the back of their helmet, hits the ground, the head bounces off, 
they can radio down, you stop the game, and that player's pulled out for a concussion assessment. Um, how, how on earth anybody could have thought that there shouldn't have at least been a concussion assessment away from being actually on the pitch and remove the player from saying, I want to continue in this game. It be It's beyond me when there's so much um, information around um, the severity of head trauma, the implications, not just there and then, but long term. Um, the danger of two back to back, isn't it, as well? So if you go back out there, it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and I th- this, um, for those that don't know, there's a quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, Tua Tungavailoa, who ended up suffering two concussions in the space of four days um, during oh. the course of this season. And it was the only thing that was being spoken about wall to wall coverage uh, over in the States. Um, it, and whilst the NFL perhaps won't have appreciated the, the spotlight that was thrown on them due to that, again, that can only be a good thing. And th- therefore, when you look at instances like we saw in the World Cup and, and you see very occasionally in domestic football over here, I, th- this I, idea that in some way it's somehow th- there's a, a macho style to a player who can take a knock to the head and still carry on. It, we're, we're more informed than that mm. now, Teddy. It's, you've got to realise what the implications are. And I, I don't think there's any way you can justify any anymore um, not saying, right, we're concerned about a player's welfare. We do it in every other aspect of life. We're concerned about that player's welfare. We're pulling him out of the game. It doesn't matter whether it's to the detriment of that team there and then, whether you um, you know have concussion substitutes. Why do, doesn't football have that? You, you have them in pretty much every other sport now. Um, so, yeah, that does concern me um, because I think it's a really straightforward and simple short-term fix, whilst longer term, you're you're investing into more research, more protective measures, how to make the game safer. Um, so, so yeah, that's one one area I would like to see addressed. Um, but, you know, information and awareness can only be a good thing. It doesn't matter what sport you're talking about. Yeah, I think in society and sports, it's good to read his history books and get context of, of where things have come from, the direction of travel. Because I was reading about the 1957 FA Cup because I'm a Manchester United fan and it was the Busby Babes before, of course, the, the Munich air disaster the, the next year. And Ray Wood, the United goalkeeper, was charged, knocked unconscious. I think it was McFarlane, McFarlane, the, the Villa striker, and, and, and came back onto the pitch and ended up wandering around the wing. So clearly in a horrible state. But, you know, that wouldn't hopefully happen now. But there was no substitutions in that time and, and concussions were common. I, I just wonder with with our football, whether whether heading is going to become the, the, the thorniest subject because how you avoid that and what the, the long-term effects are and whether we change the balls, make the balls lighter. I know the kids are getting banned from, from heading in certain countries, the USA and, and Scotland. So it's, that's, an, that's an interesting aspect because that would fundamentally change the sport, I think. I, I think it's a good thing that um, heading is certainly being monitored and limited, if not banned, in the lower age levels. I'm not sure whether... You, you ever get to a point where you actually ban it from mm. the game because there comes a point when, um, you know, grown men are, are adults uh, and yeah, you have an awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it, there, is, there is a choice that's made to it. But again, same in uh, rugby and the NFL. If you're below a certain age group at kids' level, there's no, no contacts, no tackling. It's tag rugby or flag football. Um, and this is all about making the game safer. And I think that that's really important. Um you're never going to... I think the key you've got to remember is you're never going to eliminate danger no matter what sport it is you're playing, be it martial arts, be it football, be it rugby, be it the NFL, whatever. Um, you're not going to be make it completely safe. There'll always be be something, but you can regulate it and you can limit the exposure that, that players have. And I think that's key. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we should end on an optimistic note because I think it is... It is getting better there. And I was thinking on the, the transatlantic prejudice sometimes we have over accents and thinking about Ted Lasso and the, the Amazon <laughs> documentary, a sort of portrayal of an American who doesn't understand English football. Then thinking maybe Jesse Marsh is the, is the pioneer who's going to break down barriers because he's, he's doing quite well at least. And he's a great communicator. And one thing he does do is, is explain his knowledge of the game. Do, do you know what I like most about Jesse Marsh? Uh, and I'll admit freely... I was a bit sceptical when I heard of his appointment uh, midway through last season. Like, could this really work? Somebody with no experience in, in the Premier League, can he keep it? Leeds United um, in the division? And to his credit, he did. And I've had the, the pleasure to meet him on a number of occasions over the course of this season. And the thing that I love about Jesse Marsh most is not only his enthusiasm, and it is unbridled enthusiasm he has, 
for the game, but he's able to bring that American openness to his mm. press conferences and the way he deals with members of the media and players alike. Um, in, in our um, profession, Teddy, you get used to the same old answers. It's just a different face and different voice. It's a bit of distance, um, isn't there, with, with English football? Yeah. And the, yeah. yeah. Whereas uh, over in America, um, and obviously you'll be aware of this, um, in the locker coaches, room. Yeah, well, you're, you're in the locker room. Within 20 minutes of the game being over, you're speaking to people one-on-one, face-to-face. Um, head coaches are made available to the media three, four times a week in the, the build-up to a game. Um, and there's an openness and a relationship that that really forces through circumstance. And to be fair, in football over here, when I first started my radio career, that's something you had with your local team. You know, you, you didn't have to make an appointment. There wasn't only a press conference mm. at the training ground that you could turn up to once a week. You had numbers of the manager, the player, you had relationships, and you could pretty much go up to the training ground any day of the week uh, and have a chat. Um, well, you, it's not quite, quite to that extent, but Jesse Marsh brings that openness that, you know, American sports has over in the States where you do have that immediacy and accountability and pretty much any question can be asked mm. um, without somebody stepping in and saying, no, no, you can't ask that because, you know, th- these guys recognize that they're high profile and they're in the entertainment business. Um, and it's been refreshing to see Jesse Marsh bring that attitude over to the Premier League when there's been times during the course of this season, make no mistake, he has been under intense scrutiny and a heck of a lot, lot of pressure. And yet he's approached pretty much each situation is encountered in the same frank, honest and open way. And he doesn't pull any punches and he doesn't call people out, out if he thinks, you know, it, it's fair criticism. Mm. Um, I, and to that extent, I look at what he's achieving now with Leeds and yeah, okay, they, they are in a, in a battle for relegation survival against this season. But you do that against the backdrop of losing perhaps your two star players in Rafinha and Calvin Phillips He's brought in several players of his own that that he knows, and he's making it work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just goes to prove that that there is more than one way to do this job. And by doing it in the way that Jesse Marsh is doing it, I think he earns himself some goodwill as well. And that goes a long way in what is uh, highly intense and pressurised business. Yeah, it's a great point. And individually, we're beneficiaries as, as people in the media, but larger picture that the reason we do our job i think when you when you boil it down is for the benefit of the fans isn't it so it actually benefits the fans if if there's more of an well, if there's no fans there's no demand for us to do our job no. is there so but if that, that distance yeah. doesn't serve them does it the distance sometimes no. between the media and the and the managers and the players can be a difficulty i think in english football yeah and how many times do you hear a manager no matter what the club or profession is talk about um the home home field support, you know, what the crowd bring when we're playing at home and how important they are and how many points they're, they're worth. And yet if things aren't going right, well, it's fairly short, brief answers. It can be a curt interview yeah. at, at times uh, and that'll be post-game. And then three days later, we'll have a pre-game press conference. And yeah, it's all about the fans again. Well, it's a two-way street. It, you don't just turn it on and off like a tap, do you? So yeah, I, I think that's, um, that's something... And, Look, living up in Yorkshire, as I do, I, I have a number of friends who are Leeds fans. There have been times this season I've heard them say, oh, I'm not sure Jesse Marsh is the man for the job. But you go to Elland Road week in, week out, or watch it on TV. And again, it's a little bit down to the stadium because it's old-fashioned and the stands are right mm. on top of you. But there's a heck of an atmosphere when you go to Elland Road. And Jesse Marsh, to his credit, even when he's had doubts, has managed to keep people on side. And, you know, say what you like about Leeds – that. They're entertaining. Uh, There'll be goals in their games for sure. There aren't many goals draws involving Leeds United. Yeah, I love his radical candour. I also love Jesse Marsh's penchant for a nickname as well. I think he even gives the referees nicknames based on their surnames. <laughs> it's brilliant to listen to his, his post-match interviews. Richard Gray, has been brilliant to catch up with you. I'm really glad it's going well. We, we obviously miss you at Sky Sports News. Can't believe it's been 18 months plus already, but it's great to, to reconnect and, and good luck with 2023. Yeah, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Great to see you as well, Teddy. And like we say, new year, onwards and upwards. Looking forward to it. Good man, thank you. I really enjoy, and maybe you found this in your industry, but speaking to someone who's who's worked in your profession for, for 20 plus years, 25 plus years now, Richard Graves, getting his take on things like impartiality, the opinion culture now, and that clamour for attention, which the internet has certainly brought, hasn't it? And traditional newspapers you can see the sensationalism that they employ in some of their social media 
articles that they like to try and get clicks through and everything. So it's a changing world, and I think fantastic. He's still got those principles of objectivity. I'm really cool to see how he's getting on, and those those challenges of working for the NFL Network, the transatlantic challenges of of reporting on sport. American sport with an English accent and vice versa as well you know some great American people I know know English football inside and out but perhaps have to work a little bit harder to persuade people because of their American accent well thank you for listening to the podcast if you like it please rate it on iTunes Spotify wherever you are listening to this podcast sport and life remember Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serena V are the chief sponsors look them up at Serena V Herring Shoes coming on board really appreciate that as well if you'd like to look at their fantastic range of shoes the discount then for 10% off is TED10, T-E-D, all capital letters, the numerals one zero. And uh, Cytoplan as well, the partners of the podcast. If you'd like to optimize your immunity, check out their supplement range at cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk. The discount code is DRAPER10R there, my last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. If you're thinking about the idea of Attic Box Audio, just want to peruse it, see what you make of it. It's uh, me sitting down with members of the public to record their life stories, typically older people, to reserve for generations, to connect generations. And you get some absolute golden nuggets when I did this with my family. Got some stuff about my dad trout tickling in South Wales and things I never knew about. And I spent a lot of time with my dad, particularly around sport. Dr. Mark Draper, but it was it was a really cool experience. So check out that out, atticboxaudio.co.uk, or you can find out more at drapermedia.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the podcast and have a great week. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.